0: Welcome, everyone, to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host, Paul, and we're up to episode 108. This podcast is entitled, Why Didn't They Win Ten Huge Discoveries Without a Nobel Prize? First story this week comes from the DailyMail.co.uk website and it's written by Mark Prigg. Alien life in our midst. The incredible creatures of Antarctica revealed. And after listening to this article, it would be worth a trip to the show notes to find the link to this article because there are some really good photographs and a couple of great videos to go with it showing these incredible creatures. Down below the ice, far from the playful penguins and other animals that bring tourists to Antarctica, is a cold and barren world that by all indications should be completely void of life. But recently scientists researching melting ice watched a half-foot-long fish swim by. Not long after that they saw shrimp-like creatures. In even more remote places on the continent, areas that haven't been exposed to sunlight for millions of years, scientists found a surprise right out of an alien movie. The DNA of a microscopic creature that looks like a combination of a bear, manatee and centipede. Life that is simultaneously normal and weird, simple and complex thrives in this extreme environment. To the scientists who brave the cold and remoteness to find life amid the ice, it's a source of surprise and wonder. For extreme life experts, it's a testimony to the power of evolution. It really shows how tenacious life is, said Reed Scherer, a micropaleontology professor at Northern Illinois University. The possibilities are just beyond our prediction. Scientists look at creatures found in harsh Antarctica and ask, If life can survive here... Why not on Mars or one of the ice-covered moons of Jupiter and Saturn where water lurks beneath the frozen surface? Maybe we aren't alone. Certainly not here. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to look around and see how extreme this environment is, biochemist Jenny Blaney said, pointing to the black volcanic rock covered by ice all around her on Deception Island. She wore a red parka with the black hood that was blown by the hard wind. When she spoke, her glasses fogged up and droplets of rain gathered on them. This is really like a desert where you have extreme low temperatures, said Blamey, research director at the Biosciences Foundation in Chile, which is studying the genetic material of microorganisms, essentially microbes that can't be seen. Deception Island is a volcanic crater off the Antarctic Peninsula that used to be a refuge for whalers at the turn of the 20th century. It was evacuated many years ago after a handful of eruptions. Yet it is a garden compared to the spot where Ross Powell stopped to talk. Powell had trekked across a separate part of the vast continent, hundreds of miles away from any buildings or research post, in a National Science Foundation mobile base camp. Speaking by satellite phone at the armpit edge of Ross Ice shelf in January... The professor from Northern Illinois University described what he and colleagues saw when they stuck a remote controlled submarine a half a mile under the ice to look at the leading underground edge of one of Antarctica's melting ice sheets. It is an area of total darkness, 600 miles from the nearest ocean and with just 30 feet of liquid water under the ice. The water is 28 degrees Fahrenheit, but the saltiness keeps it from freezing. Scientists turned on the cameras when were astonished to see a fish, thin and almost translucent, darting around and at times seeming to be playing peekaboo with the camera. Orange-shelled creatures called amphipods also drifted by. When the scientists in the makeshift control room of the ice first saw the fish, they started screaming and yelling and clapping, Powell said. By the time a couple of days had passed, Shura said the fish had become so common that we got to the point of oh, there's another fish, instead of, oh my god, there's a fish. As a joke, someone had brought a fish cage from New Zealand, but now it was no joke. The scientists tried to catch a fish using a giant net attached to the submarine's camera system and making bait out of leftovers from the previous night's dinner. They never caught a fish, but they did nab some of the amphipods. Still, Scherer, who loves seafood, wasn't tempted to nibble. I thought they smelled kind of baity, he said. Powell and Shura are now trying to figure out where the animals came from, and even more importantly, where they get the food to survive. The search for life has also taken scientists to Lake Vostok, considered the most remote place on Earth. The mostly freshwater lake is buried under 2.3 miles of ice and hasn't been near open air for 15 million years. A couple of years ago, scientists took water samples from the lake and tested them for traces of life. They found genetic sequences for 3,507 recognisable species, as well as about 10,000 species not yet known to science, said Scott Rogers, a professor of microbiology at Bowling Green State University who worked on the study. It seems like most of the species were alive recently and not fossils from thousands of years ago, Rogers said. About 94% of the species they could identify were bacterial, essentially simple microbial life. But there were also fungi and even a couple of genetic traces of microscopic animals. That included DNA from tardigrades, also known as water bears, the tiny creatures that looked like one-eyed extraterrestrial grizzlies when seen under an electron microscope. There were even indications that there might be small fish elsewhere in the Chile lake. These findings excite astronomers who search for possible forms of life on other planets. Just this month, astronomers found that Jupiter's giant moon, Ganymede, had water under the ice. So does Europa, another moon of Jupiter, and Enceladus, a moon of Saturn. And then there are exoplanets, those circling bodies outside our solar system. When unexpected creatures are found under the ice, you start to wonder if that couldn't happen on an icy moon Or an exoplanet, said Lisa Kaltenegger, an astronomer and director of the Institute for Pale Blue Dots at Cornell University. Science doesn't have those cosmic answers yet, but the mysterious fish in the darkness of Antarctica may hold clues. From MentalFloss.com, A story by Brian Gottesman Ten things you might not know about J.R.R. R. Tolkien There are plenty of things even the most ardent fans don't know about John Ronald Reuel Tolkien. One. He had a flair for the dramatic. As a linguist and expert on Old English and Old Norse literature, Tolkien was a professor at Oxford University from 1925 until 1959. He was also a tireless instructor, teaching between 70 and 136 lectures a year. His contract only called for 36. But the best part is the way he taught those classes. Although quiet and unassuming in public, Tolkien wasn't the typical stodgy, reserved stereotype of an Oxford don in the classroom. He went to parties dressed as a polar bear, chased a neighbour dressed as an axe-wielding Anglo-Saxon warrior, and was known to hand shopkeepers his false teeth as payment. As one of his students put it, he could turn a lecture room into a mead hall. Number 2. He felt many of his fans were lunatics. Tolkien saw himself as a scholar, first, and as a writer, second. The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings were largely Tolkien's attempt to construct a body of myth, and their success caught him largely unaware. In fact, he spent years rejecting, criticising and shredding adaptations of his work that he didn't believe captured its epic scope and noble purpose. He was also utterly sceptical of most Lord of the Rings fans whom he thought incapable of really appreciating the work, and he probably would have been horrified by movie fandom dressing up like Legolas. Number three, he loved his day job. To Tolkien, writing fantasy fiction was simply a hobby. The works he considered most important were his scholarly works, which included Beowulf, The Monsters and the Critics, A modern translation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and a Middle English vocabulary. Number four. He was quite the romantic, and he's got the nerdy gravestone to prove it. At age 16, Tolkien fell in love with Edith Bratt, three years his senior. His guardian, a Catholic priest, was horrified that his ward was seeing a Protestant and ordered the boy to have no more contact with Edith until he turned 21. Tolkien obeyed, pining after Edith for years until that fateful birthday when he met with her under a railroad viaduct. She broke off her engagement to another man, converted to Catholicism and the two were married for the rest of their lives. At Tolkien's instructions, their shared gravestone has the names Varon and Luthien engraved on it, a reference to a famous pair of star-crossed lovers from the fictional world he created. Number five. His relationship with C.S. Lewis was not all it's cracked up to be. Tolkien's fellow Oxford Don C.S. Lewis, author of The Chronicles of Narnia, is often identified as his best friend and closest confidant. But the truth is, the pair had a much more troubled relationship. At first, the two authors were very close. In fact, Tolkien's wife Edith was reportedly jealous of their friendship. And it was Tolkien who convinced Lewis to return to Christianity. But their relationship cooled over what Tolkien perceived as Lewis's anti-Catholic leanings and scandalous personal life. He had been romancing an American divorcee at the time. Although they would never be as close as they were before, Tolkien regretted the separation. After C.S. Lewis died, Tolkien wrote in a letter to his daughter that So far I have felt like an old tree that is losing all of its leaves one by one. This feels like an axe blow near the roots. Number six, he enjoyed clubbing. Well, the extracurricular after-school sort. Wherever Tolkien went, he was intimately involved in the formation of literary and scholarly clubs. As a professor at Leeds University, for example, he formed the Viking Club. And during his stint at Oxford, he formed the Inklings, a literary discussion group. 7. He wasn't blowing smoke about those war scenes. Tolkien was a veteran of the First World War and served as a second lieutenant in the 11th Service Battalion of the British Expeditionary Force in France. He was also present for some of the most bloody trench fighting of the war, including the Battle of the Somme. The deprivations of Frodo and Sam on their road to Mordor may have had their origins in Tolkien's time in the trenches during which he contracted a chronic fever from the lice that invested him, that forced him to return home. He would later say that all but one of his close friends died in the war, giving him a keen awareness of its tragedy that shines through in his writing. 8. He invented language for fun A philologist by trade, Tolkien kept his mind exercised by inventing new languages, many of which, like the elvish languages of Quenya and Sindarin, he used extensively in his writing. He even wrote songs and poems in his fictional languages. In addition, Tolkien worked to reconstruct and write in extinct languages like medieval Welsh and Lombardic. His poem, Flower of the Trees, might be the first original work written in the Gothic language in over a millennium. 9 he's been published almost as prolifically, posthumously as alive. Most authors have to be content with the works they produce during their lifetime, but not Tolkien. His scribblings and random notes, along with manuscripts he never bothered to publish, have been edited, revised, compiled, redacted, and published in dozens of volumes after his death, most of them produced by his son Christopher. While Tolkien's most famous posthumous publication is The Silmarillion, other works include The History of Middle-earth, Unfinished Tales and The Children of Huron. And finally, number 10. He wasn't nearly as fond of the Nazis as they were of him. Tolkien's academic writings on Old Norse and Germanic history, language and culture, were extremely popular among the Nazi elite, who were obsessed with recreating ancient Germanic civilization but Tolkien was disgusted by Hitler and the Nazi party and made no secret of the fact. He considered forbidding a German translation of The Hobbit after the German publisher, in accordance with Nazi law, asked him to certify that he was an Aryan. Instead, he wrote a scathing letter asserting, among other things, his regret that he had no Jewish ancestors. His feelings are also evidenced in a letter he wrote to his son, I have in this war a burning private grudge, which would probably make me a better soldier at 49 than I was at 22, against that ruddy little ignoramus Adolf Hitler, ruining, perverting, misapplying and making forever accursed that noble northern spirit, a supreme contribution to Europe which I have ever loved and tried to present in its true light. From the news.nationalgeographic.com. Why didn't they win ten huge discoveries without a Nobel Prize? The National Geographic science writers, bloggers, and editors picked groundbreaking advances and inventions that should have won a Nobel Prize. The World Wide Web. When the National Geographic folks asked what discovery deserves a Nobel Prize but never won, my first instinct was to ask my followers on Twitter. After they gave me a few candidates, I googled Velcro and dark matter and embryonic stem cells and read about these discoveries. Then it occurred to me, what could be more deserving of the Nobel Prize than the invention I had so relied on to learn about inventions? Beginning in the 1960s, researchers in the US federal government created computer communication networks that would evolve into the internet. But I'd give the Nobel to the British computer scientist Tim Berners-Lee, who in 1989 proposed the idea for the World Wide Web and in 1990 created the first website, a page describing the web. The web democratises information, whether dumb videos of dancing cats or brave tweets from the Arab Spring. And information is power. And that one was written by Virginia Hughes. The first genome. A lot of people wonder why there has been no Nobel Prize for one of science's most humongous achievements, the completion of the human genome in 2001. Perhaps it's the sheer humongousness For all its importance, the human genome wasn't a discovery or an invention. It was an engineering project, requiring the scaling up of automated DNA sequencing to industrial proportions. As Human Genome Project scientist Eric Lander said at the time, you don't get a Nobel Prize for turning a crank. One might get a prize, however, for inventing the crank in the first place. Six years before the human genome, Craig Venter and his colleagues had shown that automated DNA sequencing and an assembly technique called the whole genome shotgun could be combined to read out the entire code of a free living organism, the bacterium Haemophilius influenzae. The methods employed are essentially the same as the one Venter's private company later scaled up to sequence the fruit fly and human genomes, and the same as what other labs have subsequently employed to crank out the codes of hundreds of other species. The Nobel Committee would be hard-pressed to select the three scientists most responsible for this first triumph of genomics, but Venter should be among them. And that was written by Jamie Shreve black hole death. One night in 1970 Stephen Hawking was climbing into bed when he had an idea that filled him with what he later described as a moment of ecstasy. He thought that black holes previously assumed to be more or less immortal could instead slowly lose mass and eventually evaporate exploding in a flash of gamma rays. The problem was that there was no way to verify the idea Black holes are too long-lived to be observed today in their death throes. Yet Hawking's black hole research is now firmly embedded in theoretical physics. It united relativity, a classical theory in which everything is smooth as silk, with quantum mechanics in which everything is grainy and spurred progress into information theory. Hawking probably would have won the prize had nature provided observational confirmation. But that won't happen for billions of years. Not until the first star-sized black hole starts exploding. And that was written by Timothy Ferris. The periodic table. I'd like to take us back to the basics. And what is more basic, more fundamental, more substantial... Than the identification of the chemical elements. The periodic table is no mere org chart. It reveals the underlying order of protons, neutrons and electrons that lie at the heart of all matter. Its neat columns and rows have predicted elements before they were found and even their properties. It seems unthinkable that such a breakthrough wouldn't win science's top honour but that's exactly what happened at the first Nobel presentations in 1901. The chemistry prize went to Jacobus H. Van Hoff for pioneering work in physical chemistry. Compared with Hoff's work showing how elements linked and moved about, the periodic table published by Dmitri Mendeleev in 1869 must have looked a bit sad. Mendeleev still had hope, He was nominated for a Nobel in 1905 and in 1906, but lost because a committee member thought his work was too old and well-known. The periodic table, it seemed, was a victim of its own success. Instead, the 1906 prize went to Henri Moisson for finding the element fluorine, right where the periodic table had said it would be. The next year, Mendeleev died, and with him the tables shot at a Nobel. Instead, it became the most useful poster in science, hanging on laboratory walls for generations, and that will have to do. And that was written by Erica Engelhout. The Light Bulb. As a fan of technologies whose days are now over, Jiffy Pop, newspapers, the iPhone, I'll be remiss in not calling for the long-overdue enshrinement of the light bulb by giving it a Nobel in physics. Thomas Edison's humble invention, first patented by Joseph Swan in the United Kingdom, but made practical by Edison, built the modern economy and sleep deficits, creating tremendous demand for the electricity that so shapes our existence today. Edison died in 1931 with no Nobel, not even for the light bulb, the very symbol of scientific inspiration. It was an historic injustice. Alfred Nobel included inventions and inventors in references to the award in his will. But prize judges are prone to draping their krona on impracticalities, such as the runaway expansion of the universe or esoteric god particles that exist only to infuriate physicists with their press-friendly nicknames. Instead, let there be light bulbs celebrated by the Nobel, the way the inventor of dynamite would have wanted. And that was written by Dan Vagano. The Quark Murray Gell-Mann won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1969 for his contributions and discoveries concerning the classification of elementary particles and their interactions. But no prize has been awarded specifically recognising the idea he's most renowned for, the quark. These tiniest constituents of matter join to form protons, neutrons and other particles. Their discovery Using pencil and paper, the theoretical physicist's most powerful tools led to a deeper understanding of the physical world. The wording of the citation was vague enough that Gell Mann's Nobel could be considered a kind of lifetime achievement award, though he was then only 40. But at the time, evidence for quarks, which he had proposed five years earlier, was still ambiguous and controversial. The presentation speech for the prize glided right past it, and some physicists have suggested that he deserves a second Nobel. It should also go to George Zweig, who independently came up with the same idea, and James Bjorken for making sense of the experiments that are now accepted as the clinching case. And that was written by George Johnson. Modern evolutionary synthesis. When the first Nobel Prizes were handed out in 1901, evolutionary biology was still a young science. Biologists at the time knew little about the nitty-gritty details of how life changed over generations. Some even questioned natural selection and other fundamental concepts of Darwin's theory of evolution. Between the 1920s and 1950s, a group of scientists, geneticists, naturalists, paleontologists recognised how mutations could arise, spread and act as the raw materials for evolution. This new view of life came to be known as the modern synthesis. Their work opened the way for today's remarkable advances in our knowledge of life's history. And that was written by Carl Zimmer. Dark Matter If we're digging into history, there are many astronomical discoveries worthy of a Nobel Prize, including Kepler's laws of planetary motion, the early 20th century determination that the universe is expanding, and the classification of stars by their spectral fingerprints. But the discovery of dark matter is the modern achievement that has perhaps been most grossly overlooked by the Nobel Prize Committee. In the 1970s, Vera Rubin and Kent Ford saw that stars at the edges of galaxies moved as quickly as the stars near the middle. In other words, these galaxies were rotating so fast that they should be flying apart, unless something invisible was contributing to the gravity holding them together. That something invisible has come to be known as dark matter, a mysterious substance comprising as much as 90% of the mass in the universe. It doesn't emit or reflect light or interact with ordinary matter in any way. Because of its stealthy, slippery nature, the dark matter principle itself has remained elusive. In other words, scientists aren't sure what this stuff is exactly. And that uncertainty may be why the discovery hasn't been recognised by the Nobel Committee, even though the 2011 Physics Prize went to a similarly enigmatic cosmological discovery. And that one was written by Nadia Drake. Tree of Life. At a time when scientists were classifying microbes based on their shapes, Carl Woez pioneered a way to divine the relationships between them by comparing their genes. His method clarified the existence of a previously unrecognized domain of life, the microscopic archaea, Scientists have used his techniques to catalogue the smorgasbord of microbes that live in our bodies and influence our health and to chart the evolutionary relationships of organisms, both large and small. Thanks to Woaz, the tree of life gained a third great trunk, more solid branches and new twigs. Woaz died in 2012 and Nobels cannot be awarded posthumously. But it's absurd that someone who unveil the full extent of life, should be denied by something as trivial as death. And that was written by Ed Yong. Dinosaur Renaissance In 1939, the Yale University paleontologist John Ostrom named one of the most important species ever found. He called the animal a 110 million year old dinosaur. Deinonychus or terrible claw This saurian was a human-sized predator with grasping hands and a sickle claw held off the ground on a hyperextendable toe. More importantly, Ostrom knew Dionychus was vastly different from the standard image of dinosaurs as slow, stupid, swamp-dwelling monsters. Dionychus, he argued, was an agile and possibly social hunter that must have had a very active lifestyle. This proposal helped launch the dinosaur renaissance that's still bearing scientific fruit today. Unfortunately, there's no Nobel Prize for paleontology or any other branch of natural history, and Dionychus has not gotten its due. And that was written by Brian Switek. Over half a century ago, deep in the jungles of Guatemala, a gigantic stone head was uncovered. The face had fine features, thin lips and large nose, and its face was directed up at the sky. Unusually the face demonstrated Caucasian features which were not consistent with any of the pre-Hispanic races of America. The discovery rapidly attracted attention, but just as quickly it slipped away into the pages of forgotten history. The Stonehead of Guatemala that history wants to forget. From TheMysticalFiles.com News of the discovery first emerged when Dr. Oscar Rafael Padilla Lara, a doctor of philosophy, lawyer and notary, received a photograph of the head in 1987, along with a description that the photograph was taken in the 1950s by the owner of the land where the head was found, and that it was located somewhere in the jungles of Guatemala. The photograph and story was printed in a small article in the newsletter Ancient Skies which was picked up and read by well-known explorer and author David Hatcher Childress, who sought out to discover more about the mysterious stone head. He tracked down Dr. Padilla, who reported that he had found the owners of the property, the Biner family, on which the monolith was found. The site was ten kilometres from a small village in La Democracia, in the south of Guatemala. However, Dr. Padilla said that he was in despair when he reached the site and found that the site had been obliterated. It was destroyed by revolutionaries about ten years ago. We had located the statue too late. It was used as target practice by anti-government rebels. This totally disfigured it, sort of like the way the Sphinx in Egypt had its nose shot off by the Turks, only worse, he said. The eyes, nose and mouth had completely gone. Padilla was able to measure its height as between four and six metres, with the head resting on a neck. Padilla did not return again to the site due to armed attacks between government forces and rebel forces in the area. The destruction of the head meant that the story died a rapid death until it was picked up again a few years ago by filmmakers behind Revelations of the Mayans 2012 and beyond, who used the photograph to claim that extraterrestrials have had contact with past civilizations. The producer published a document written by Guatemalan archaeologist Hector E. Magia, who wrote, I certify that this monument presents no characteristics of Maya, or any other pre Hispanic civilization. It was created by an extraordinary and superior civilization with awesome knowledge of which there is no record of existence on this planet. However, far from helping the cause in the investigation into this monolith, this publication only served to have the opposite effect throwing the whole story into the hands of a justifiably sceptical audience who thought that it was all just a publicity stunt. Even the letter itself has been drawn into question, with some saying that it is not genuine. Nevertheless, it appears the giant head did exist, and there is no evidence to suggest the original photograph is not authentic, or that Dr. Padilla's account was false. So assuming it was real, the questions remain. Where did it come from? Who made it? And why? The region where the stone was reported to have been found, La Democracia, is actually already famous for stone heads, which, like the stone head found in the jungle, also face skyward. They are known to have been created by the Olmec civilization, which flourished between 1400 and 400 BC. The Olmec heartland was in the area in the Gulf of Mexico lowlands, However, Olmec-style artefacts, designs, monuments and iconography have been found in sites hundreds of kilometres outside the Olmec heartland, including La Democracia. Nevertheless, the stone head depicted in the 1950s photograph does not share the same feature or style as the Olmec head's. The late Philip Coppens, Belgian author, radio host and TV commentator on matters of alternative history, raised the question of whether the head is an anomaly of the Olmec period or whether it is part of another unknown culture that predated or postdated the Olmecs and whose only artefact identified so far is the Padilla head. Other questions that have been posed include whether the structure was just a head or whether there was a body underneath, like the Easter Island statues, and whether the stone head is linked to any other structures in the region. It would be nice to know the answers to these questions, but sadly it appears the publicity surrounding the film, Revelations of the Mayans, 2012 and beyond, only serve to bury the story deeper into the pages of history. Hopefully, an ambitious explorer will pick up the story once again and investigate further to find the truth regarding this enigmatic monument. And if you'd like to see a picture of the monument, visit the show notes. It's quite clear and it is very, very strange looking. And now, a couple of short stories from the coolinterestingstuff.com website. And the first one Was Jesus Really an Alien? It has been alleged that the US and Israeli governments led archaeological digs in the past, which discovered the true cross on which Jesus himself was crucified, along with many other crosses, as crosses were reused. The theories disagree on the location, most claiming Jerusalem, many claiming Rosslyn Chapel in Scotland, or various places in England. Minute traces of blood were discovered on the cross and analysed. The DNA was of several strains, and one was encoded not on a double helix, but on a triple helix. Is this good stuff or what? The DNA is unlike any other known, and was labelled as a new species, Homo superioris. The theory continues that there are other people of this species currently living underground in various places around the world, including most of the major cities, and they have been around as long or longer than Homo sapiens. Jesus made the unprecedented decision to come up to the surface and limp among us, and try to teach us to be good and kind and peaceful. His species possess phenomenal supernatural abilities, including telekinesis, levitation, walking on water, telepathy, knowing people's thoughts, healing, etc. They are also very difficult to kill, and when no one was looking, presumably during the freak storm and earthquake, Jesus got down off the cross and disappeared, having done his job. This ties in with the Jesus bloodline theory. The Strange Mystery of the Man from Tored It's July 1954, a hot day. A man arrives at Tokyo Airport in Japan. He's of Caucasian appearance and conventional looking but the officials are suspicious. On checking his passport, they see that he hails from a country called Torred. The passport looked genuine, except for the fact that there is no such country as Torred, well, at least in our dimension. The man is interrogated and asked to point out where his country supposedly exists on a map. He immediately points his finger towards the Principality of Andorra, but becomes angry and confused. He's never heard of Andorra and can't understand why his homeland of Torred isn't there. According to him it should have been, for it has existed for more than a thousand years. Customs officials found him in possession of money from several different European currencies. His passport had been stamped by many airports around the globe, including previous visits to Tokyo. Baffled? Baffled? They took him to a local hotel and placed him in a room with two guards outside until they could get to the bottom of the mystery. The company he claimed to work for had no knowledge of him, although he had copious amounts of documentation to prove his point. The hotel he claimed to have a reservation for had never heard of him either. The company officials in Tokyo he was there to do business with, yep, you guessed it, they just shook their heads too. Later, when the hotel room he was held in was opened, the man had disappeared. The police established that he could not have escaped out of the window. The room was several floors up, and there was no balcony. He was never seen again, and the mystery was never solved. The Mysterious Band of Holes Pisco Valley on the Nazca Plateau. What are the band of holes? A stretch of thousands of mysterious holes carved into the rock that lead up a hill located on the same plateau, not far from the Nazca Lines. These unexplained and highly organised holes range in size from 3 feet to as much as 20 to 30 feet in diameter and vary in depth from a few inches to 6 to 7 feet. Some sections of the carving strangely have holes in rigid, perfect precision, while some run in rows that carve up in arches, creating strange, staggered lines. Even more mysterious is that it has been predicated that it took decades to create, and no reason has been discovered as to the purpose of the holes. Alien holes? there have not been any artefacts discovered or uncovered to reveal any further information about the holes. Some archaeologists believe that because the holes are man-sized, they may be some sort of vertical graves intended for burying the dead. However, this is unlikely and has not been substantiated by the recovery of any bones, artefacts or other human remains to indicate a burial site. Other archaeologists have theorised that the holes were dug to store grain and other essentials. Again, this is unlikely. Considering the quantity of the holes and the depth of each hole, a better method of storage would have been used. For example, storage containers for grain could have been built with much more ease than the efforts required to carve holes into the rock. The holes cover a mile of Rocky Mountain terrain, with a well-defined beginning and ending point. The band of holes abruptly comes to an end near an area of land that has an unnaturally darkened colour. Research shows that the darkened area appears to resemble an area that has been destroyed by an explosion. The holes could have been created by or for extraterrestrial beings. Perhaps the holes contained fires to guide the ancient aliens who visited the Earth. And if you visit the show notes, you can see photographs of all these strange things. In the churchyard of St Pancras Old Church in London, hundreds of old gravestones circle an ash tree. Of course, these were not how they were originally laid out. So how did they get to this, their final resting place as it were, and who was responsible? From the curiositas.com website, The Hardy Tree, an early work of a great novelist. Long before he became famous for novels like Tess of the D'Urbervilles, Far from the Maddening Crowd, and The Mayor of Casterbridge, Thomas Hardy, like any other aspiring writer, had to find employment with which to pay his way through the world. His chosen field was to be architecture. However, it is unlikely that the would-be author could guess what one of his firm's projects would demand of him. He probably didn't sign up for the architecture to then be sent to excavate a graveyard. Yet, like many a young man finding his path, sometimes you have to do what you have to do. During his five years with the Covent Garden-based architect Arthur Blomfield, the railway system of the British Isles was undergoing a huge burst of growth, The lines in and around London were in particular demanding more room to carry people in and out of the capital. It was during this time that an older part of St Pancras Churchyard was designated for almost total obliteration in order to make way for a new railway line. The Bishop of London gave the contract for this work to Blomfield, who passed responsibility on to his young student, Hardy. Yet these objects in the way of progress could not be cleared like slums. Even progress occasionally must respect what came before, and the removal and relocation of so many middle-class graves would almost certainly have caused an uproar if it was not done properly. The coffins were removed from the site with circumspection and care and were reburied elsewhere. The Victorian English had a horror of cremation. There was no need to move the headstones, yet although the graves were old and unvisited, it would not have been respectful to simply dump the headstones into the Thames. The process would have taken a great deal of time, and young Hardy, who was 25 when he was given this commission, would have spent the best part of a year overseeing the work. Perhaps his experiences in St Pancras' churchyard later informed some of the bleaker passages in his novels. Some of the headstones were placed in a circular pattern around a young ash tree in the churchyard of St Pancras' old church, far enough away from the site of the railway for them never to have been disturbed again. Over the decades, the tree has inevitably grown and parts of the headstones nearest the tree have disappeared into its growth. There, the headstones persist. Time and elements have destroyed almost every indication of whose mortal remains these headstones once stood over. Yet as a sign of deference to the vast throngs that have circled in and around London through the centuries, this arrangement seems an unquestionably appropriate memento mori. And if you visit the show notes, there's quite a lot of really good photographs to go with this article, as is typical of this site. It's actually quite an interesting thing. I wished I'd seen it when I was in London. It's quite, quite cool. Yeah, worth a look. I received an email from David Almeida the other day with a link to an article that we could use in Mysteries Abound as well as this short paranormal story. I'd like to read it to you. It's quite a good one. One of my best friends in Brazil is a gynaecologist. One evening at a party, he told me of a very strange experience that he had never told anyone before. On a Thursday morning, a middle-aged woman named Kacha Mother of one of his patients, Sarah, showed up at his office without an appointment. She asked for just two minutes of his time, so he made a small window for her in between appointments. They both sat down around a meeting table. She asked him if he could do her a favour. She and her daughter were not on the best terms and hadn't been talking for a few months But she knew that her daughter needed a very important document that she would not be able to find. She asked my friend to contact her daughter and tell her that the deeds for one of the family's properties was wedged inside the third volume of the old Barsa Encyclopedia. My friend, a very mellow guy, didn't see a problem and promised to contact Sarah that same day and pass along the information. So, later in the afternoon, he called Sarah. "'Hi, Sarah, this is Dr Dumont. Everything is okay. I received a visit from your mother, and she asked me to tell you that the deed documents for one of the properties that you need is wedged in the third volume of the old Barsa Encyclopedia.'" After a few seconds of silence, Sarah replied, "'Doctor, when did my mother visit you?' "'This morning,' She came without scheduling any appointment. Sarah, after a long pause, said, Is this a joke or something? My mother passed away last Thursday. The doctor said, No, Sarah, this is no joke, I promise you. Sarah said, Let me check the encyclopedia. A couple of minutes passed. She returned to the phone crying. The documents are exactly where you said. You don't know how badly... We needed this document. And from the independent.ie website. Ghostly apparitions and paranormal activity in my little house on the prairie. I'm slightly embarrassed recounting the strange tale of what happened to me all those years ago in my native Canada. As a news journalist, I'm paid to be a professional sceptic to cast a cold eye on mumbo-jumbo and search out the facts. What is an indisputable fact is that I spent 13 years living in a rented old house which had reputedly operated as a brothel 100 years back in the famous flatlands of Winnipeg where I experienced the inexplicable. I could have left any time but never did in spite of the many incidents that convinced me that there was something else lurking in the house. My boyfriend naturally assumed I was crazy, but even he was spooked one Sunday night when a thick ghostly mist enveloped the living room while we were watching TV. We had both extinguished cigarettes, the normal kind, but several minutes later a thick fog of smoke remained hovering in the space, directly in front of us. As soon as I remarked on it, the smoke shot towards the fireplace and began forming a vertical column, roughly the height and width of an average-sized man, that started at the floor and quickly wafted upwards, as if it was about to form into the outline of a person. The shape shot across the room, diagonally, like a bullet, before suddenly disappearing in a puff. My hitherto sceptical boyfriend turned white and began shaking. I wasn't much better. When our nerves finally eased, we desperately clawed at finding a logical explanation for the apparent apparition. But we couldn't. The flue to the fireplace was shut, and any kind of draught couldn't explain the sheer speed and velocity at which the smoke took shape before it shot across the room. I put it down to Hank. The pet name I had for a ghost, I believed, wandered the house, and who began making his presence felt almost immediately after I moved in. On one occasion I discovered wall brackets on the window blind that I tried to put up one night had inextricably disappeared, lined up in a neat line on the threshold of my bedroom the following morning. A catalogue of bizarre events followed, I constantly found locked windows and doors, including one with the chain still on it, open and unlocked with no signs of a break-in or anything missing. I got used to everyday objects, such as the bathtub plug, suddenly going missing, only to reappear seconds, minutes or even days later in the strangest of places. The ghostly incidents intensified any time I carried out any repair or even simple DIY work on the house. One time the hooks I was screwing into a wall in the bedroom closet suddenly vanished when I left the room for a split second to get my hammer, only to resurface later in an odd little pile when I looked beneath the tablecloth covering the counter where I had left them. It appeared the more I tried to ignore the paranormal activity or find a logical explanation for it, the worse it got. One night I returned home after being out for only an hour to discover a large handprint in what looked like mud or dried blood on the kitchen wall even though no one had been there. I was still living in the house when I met the previous tenants one night at a neighbor's barbecue. After brief introductions they asked me straight out, Has anything strange happened in there? So I told them, and they were able to echo every one of my experiences in the house. They had also experienced the strange handprint on the kitchen wall. I even consulted a paranormal investigator who gave me a free inspection and told me the creepy old 19th century incinerator in the basement could very well be a conduit to the other side. But oddly... I never felt really scared until years later when I moved here to Ireland. I was watching a horror movie in which a demonic presence had apparently scratched out the face of someone in a photograph. The same disturbing thing happened to me in Winnipeg when I came home after being away for several days and found my face had been scratched out in a photo left lying on the kitchen table. I put it down to the cat being annoyed at being left alone for the weekend never thinking that Hank might have had been trying to tell me something. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth for the show is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes are held at the Origins podcast website, origins.info. And don't forget we have a Facebook page for the podcast, which tells you what's happening and other things going on in my life and with the podcast. So it's facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy, or click on the Facebook link at the show notes. And I'd like to say a big thank you to these people, Luke Hewson, Sean Yarnell, Jeff Chapman and Scott McClory. These kind people have set up a recurring payment as a donation to the podcast. So every month a few dollars from these people pops into my PayPal account just to help with the ongoing expenses of creating the show. So thank you. Your help is greatly appreciated. So just for you guys, Sean, Luke, Jeff and Scott, a story from the pastor. Dot com O'Malley's Family Restaurant As younger siblings tend to do. I absolutely worshipped my old brother Calvin. He always seemed like the coolest person in the world to me. Everybody liked him. He was president of his class, a star baseball player, and just had an all-round great personality. All the girls thought he was such a stud, much to my surprise. Although he was older, Calvin wasn't the stereotypical monster. I think that's why we got along so well. For one thing, he would never dream of hurting me in any way. When I told my psychiatrists this, they couldn't believe it. An older brother that never once tortured his younger sister. There was no way one of those existed anywhere. But Calvin was different. His bedroom door was always open whenever I needed someone to talk to. He'd let me lie on his floor and listen to his records with him while he did his homework. I felt like the luckiest girl in the world. As the two of us grew up in a small town in the middle of Rhode Island, we only became closer. Maybe it was because of our family situation, but we both needed each other greatly. Our father was an alcoholic. He'd come home drunk most of the time and take out all of his anger on us. Calvin never let him get to me, though. He would let me sleep with him in his bed most nights. So I wouldn't have to hear our parents fighting through the bedroom walls alone. Our mother was helpless but tried her hardest. She was controlled by him and was stuck in a bad situation. She often thought about leaving with us, but with our control freak of a dad, it was out of the question. Sadly, Mum died when I was 13. The autopsy showed that she had had an overdose on painkillers. They ruled it as accidental but I was never so sure. After she was gone, our father only got worse. It got so bad that the second he graduated, Calvin moved into an apartment on the other side of town and took me with him. Our father barely protested. I'm pretty sure he never wanted kids in the first place. From then on, it was just Calvin and I, on our own in the big world. He attended the local community college and worked part-time at a grocery store. It wasn't the most glamorous thing, but it helped to get food on the table. I was hard to look after. I was deeply disturbed after such a tough childhood. I wasn't good at making friends or being friendly, but my brother never turned his back on me. We were away from our broken home and we were happy just to have each other. It's at this point in our lives that we made the biggest mistake we ever could. The two of us didn't know it at the time, but to this day I still regret picking up that phone more than anything. It was the end of summer around 1976. The winds were brisk, as early September was approaching fast. Calvin and I had been on our own then for about two years. I was 15, he was 19. I remember that I was sitting at the kitchen table finishing my homework. Calvin was working on fixing frozen TV dinners. The phone was in the living room. I jumped up immediately when it started to ring. Hello? I asked into the receiver. It was Joey Malone. Joey was my brother's best friend in high school. The two of them were practically joined at the hip until they went their separate ways for college. Joey was in Miami. I could hear the longing for his friend in his voice. After we caught up for a brief moment, he turned serious. Hey, let me talk to your brother real quick, Joey said. I've got some news that I think he might like. I rolled my eyes playfully and handed the receiver to Calvin. I could hear my brother laughing from the living room as he caught up with his old friend. They must have been on the phone for a good hour because I had already taken our TV dinners out of the oven and had finished mine by the time Calvin walked in. Hey, sorry about that, Laurel, he smiled softly, taking a seat across from me. Man, you'll never believe what Joey's been up to. I cocked an eyebrow suspiciously. Is he locked up in prison already? I joked. No, but he might as well be. His neighbours are going away for the Labor Day weekend and he's throwing a monster party in their house while they're gone. He's invited us to come and crash it. Can you believe it? He chuckled, taking a bite of frozen chicken. I should have known right then that we shouldn't go. It was illegal to break into someone's home, but even more illegal to throw a party in it. I should have known that it wasn't a good idea, but I was naive, a 15-year-old girl. So of course I agreed. Calvin and I planned to drive up to Joey's house. It would take us a while from Rhode Island, but the two of us were stoked. We didn't even care. We spent the long car ride blasting the doors on the radio and singing the lyrics way off key. This was definitely when I felt most content. Little did I know the terror that we'd be thrown into later that night. If I had, I would have made Calvin turn the car around and drive off a cliff. We had been in Calvin's truck for who knows how long. It was around nine o'clock that night when we noticed that we were in a nowhere land. "'Our map said we were in New Jersey, but it didn't seem like it. "'Are you sure we aren't lost?' I asked my brother as I chewed on a wad of bubblegum. "'He kept his eyes firmly on the road ahead of us, nodding his head. "'Of course we aren't. Joey told me the directions himself.' "'I rolled my eyes, blowing a bubble. "'We must have been driving through nothing but trees for about another hour, "'and then I finally declared that we were lost.' My brother had the crazy idea that his best friend was some kind of genius, but I knew better. Calvin was getting tired. I was getting restless. I had been sitting in the same position for too long, and I couldn't feel my legs. Can we please pull over somewhere, I whined. Don't you think I would have had about two hours ago? There's nowhere to pull over, Calvin replied, stifling a cough. It turned into a slight wheeze which caused my ears to perk up. ''Are you okay?'' I asked him, concern filling my voice. He nodded, brushing it off, just as a tickle in his throat. Usually that would have been enough to disinterest me, but that night I was on full alert. Calvin had really bad asthma. I'd almost lost him many times because of it, which was scary to think about. Almost as scary as the endless road in front of us. It was about thirty minutes later that Calvin began to get frustrated, Shit, he had grumbled to himself. That jackass had no idea what he was talking about. I didn't reply. I knew he wouldn't admit that I was right. I was beginning to feel really uncomfortable with our surroundings. It was weird that we had driven hours through nothing but trees, only seeing another passing car every 50 miles or so. I didn't want to admit it, but I was scared. Where were we going to sleep? On the side of the road? Just the thought of that creeped me out. Both of us were hungry. At one point, Calvin had asked me to check the map to see if there were any rest stops or motels anywhere close. There weren't. Not until it was about 10.30. Calvin was practically falling asleep at the wheel when my eyes fell upon a small speck on our ancient-looking map. ''Calvin, get up!'' I shook him, excitement rising in my voice. ''There's a restaurant coming up in about 20 miles.'' His eyes popped open. Are you serious, he asked. Yeah, there should be an exit up ahead somewhere. I couldn't believe our luck. It did strike me as odd that this was the only sign of civilization for hundreds of miles, but I was so hungry. I didn't care. I gave Calvin the directions to the place. There weren't any signs in the pitch black forests, but I knew that we were getting close. Pretty soon Calvin turned and there it was. The place looked like your typical 1950s-style diner. It was a small building with large glass windows, making it easy to look inside. I could see a few people sitting down. Calvin parked on the dirt road outside. I jumped out anxiously, dying to stretch my legs. It was a lot colder in that area. I pulled a sweatshirt over my head as Calvin buttoned up his jacket. I could smell coffee and homemade pie drifting out through the sliding glass door. Calvin and I walked side by side. As I looked up at the sign, I noticed there was another part to it that I hadn't seen before. It flickered every now and then in the moonlight. O'Malley's Family Restaurant. Motel on East Side. We stepped through the door. The doors were checkered and the rows of red vinyl booths were almost all filled. There were a few bustly-looking men over at the counter, sipping hot coffee out of mugs. A woman sat with her young daughter, the two of them giggling softly as they ate plates of pancakes. A group of teenagers in leather jackets stood over by the jukebox. One slipped a dime into it, and some ancient tune by Buddy Holly started to play. An unbelievable feeling of dread immediately fell over me. It came out of nowhere, but it wouldn't go away. I immediately regretted pulling up there. I didn't even hear the woman come up to us. "'Can I help you, kids?' Her voice was soft like butter. I glanced up and was met with the dark eyes of an elderly woman. She wore a red dress and matching shoes, a dirty apron draped over her front, her apple doll face smiled down at us and her silver hair gleaming in the lights overhead. I didn't speak. I don't know why.' but I couldn't open my mouth. "'Yes, ma'am,' Calvin said with a smile. "'We'd just like a quick bite to eat before we hit the road again.' He poked me in the back, and I nodded my head feebly in agreement. "'Well, come on in. My name is Millie, Millie O'Malley. Welcome to our restaurant.' Her laugh had years of age visible in every syllable, yet it made me cringe. "'It's nice to meet you, Millie. I'm Calvin Duncan, and this is my sister Laurel.' I still didn't feel right as I reluctantly took her hand in mine. She was somebody's grandmother, but something about her made me uneasy. I guess I got that way around anybody new that I met, but bad vibes were coming off of her. Laurel, that's such a lovely name. I managed a weak smile as Millie let out another laugh. Well, I don't want to keep you kids just standing around. Come on, and I'll find you to a booth. Calvin and Millie were talking up a storm. I hung behind them, pretending not to notice. I learned that Millie and her husband Ted had opened the restaurant a couple of years ago after retiring. She was the hostess and he was the cook. They didn't have any children, which is why Millie enjoyed it so much when younger people stopped in. Calvin was always so polite. He laughed at her jokes and told her our sob story. When she learned that we really didn't have any parents, her expression changed. Almost to one of... Delight. "'Oh, you poor things. "'Well, consider me your mother for the night.' "'She handed us our menus "'as I took a seat across from my brother in the booth. "'As she walked away, Calvin opened his with a smile. "'Isn't she just the sweetest woman you've ever met?' he beamed, "'his light brown bangs falling over his eyes. "'I didn't reply. "'I slouched down in my seat, "'not bothering to look at meal choices. "'I suddenly wasn't hungry anymore. "'My eyes wandered elsewhere. "'I watched as the teenagers by the jukebox drank Cokes straight out of the bottle "'and talked amongst themselves. "'What's the matter? "'You feeling okay?' "'Calvin asked, concerned in his voice. "'I just nodded my head. "'I didn't answer when he asked me what I wanted to eat. "'I knew that I was getting on his nerves, "'but I honestly couldn't care less. "'When Millie came to take our orders, I remained quiet.' Calvin ordered us pancakes and hot chocolate with a warm smile. As she walked away, he turned back to me, his expression annoyed. "'What's your deal tonight, Laurel? You're acting like a little kid,' he snapped. "'Don't you feel the least bit uncomfortable around her?' I raised an eyebrow. Calvin looked at me, confused. "'What are you talking about?' Mrs O'Malley, don't you feel it? She's weird. Something about her doesn't seem right to me. I don't know how he couldn't see it. She's just being nice. God, stop acting stuck up and try to appreciate what she's doing for us, Calvin shot back harshly. I rolled my eyes and didn't speak to him for the remainder of our meal. I now wish that I would have. I didn't know then that that would be one of the last moments I would ever spend with my brother again. When our food arrived, Calvin thanked Millie for me. I picked at my food and stared down at my shoes. Calvin pretended not to notice. We never fought. We would have squabbles and this was one of them. Calvin was always so patient with me, but I wasn't an easy kid to look after. I often wonder if that's what got my father so angry. I had trust issues from growing up in a home where I didn't feel safe. I came off as cold a lot of the time, and my brother was usually the only one who would comfort me, but even he sometimes got fed up. I'm going to the bathroom. I spoke for the first time in half an hour. Calvin just nodded his head, taking a sip of his drink. I slid out of the vinyl booth and made my way to the back. I locked myself in a stall and stood against the wall. I don't know how long I was in there. I just needed to be away from that table. When I returned, however, Calvin was talking to Millie and who I assumed was her husband, Ted. He was a bigger man with a few grey hairs, still clinging to his balding head. His greasy apron hung over his khaki pants and a green flannel shirt. They were all laughing about something. Calvin stopping to cough now and again. I walked over to the table as quietly as I could. Calvin looked up at me and smirked. Well, speak of the devil, he joked, motioning for me to come and sit by him. He must have forgiven me, or at least have been faking it in front of the O'Malley's. I didn't care. I clung to my brother tightly. "'I've been wondering what brought you kids all the way up here,' Millie said suddenly, her unsettling smile growing wider. "'We don't get many visitors up here.' "'We're driving to Florida to visit some old friends,' Calvin replied. "'I'm glad that we found this place, though.' Millie glanced at Ted. He blinked, his expression changing to one of pleasure." They stayed silent for a moment, as if contemplating an answer. We're a bit in the middle of nowhere, I guess, Ted chuckled hoarsely. He was missing a few teeth. The remaining ones in his mouth were all yellow. I turned to look out the window. I watched the truck as three of them continued to talk. Well, we'd really like to thank you folks for your kind hospitality. How much do I owe you, Calvin asked, reaching for his wallet. Millie shook his head. "'Nope, it's on the house.' "'When my brother tried to protest, she put a bony finger to his lip. "'He smiled in gratitude, getting up to leave. "'I jumped out of the booth and was just about to reach for the door "'when Ted blocked my way. "'Hey, what do you kids think you're doing? "'You can't go driving out now. "'It's nearly one o'clock in the morning. "'I wouldn't know. "'There were no clocks or signs of time anywhere in the diner. "'It was like we were in the twilight zone.' I glanced worriedly up at Calvin, trying to signal him to keep walking. ''You two look like you've been driving all day,'' Ted continued. ''I don't think it would be wise to be behind the wheel when you're tired. ''Come on in the back. We've got a nice little motel where you kids can stay until morning.'' I froze. There was no way in hell that I was spending another second with those creeps. ''That's all right,'' I tried to object. ''We'll be fine.'' "'but my brother wasn't so sure. "'I don't know, Laurel, I'm really tired and you're still underage. "'I don't want to put our lives at risk by falling asleep at the wheel,' "'Calvin said feebly. "'I shook my head and grabbed his hand. "'He was stronger than me, though. "'I got pulled back onto the chequered floor. "'Calvin!' I tried to object, "'but he ignored me and walked back to Millie. "'I think we'll take a room for tonight.' "'He smiled, pushing me behind his back.' Millie grinned and winked at her husband. Wonderful. Ted will show you two to the motel across the way. If you'll give me your car keys, I can go fetch your luggage for you. My mouth was dry as I watched my brother pull his keys out of his back pocket. I couldn't believe it. I grabbed onto the back of Calvin's jacket as I watched Millie walk outside. He just brushed me off. I trailed behind hopelessly. Ted led us into another building a few feet away from the restaurant. It was smaller than the diner, but only by a little. And it was also made entirely out of logs, as if Abe Lincoln had built it only weeks prior. He and Calvin were chatting away about who knows what. Ted pulled a key out of his pocket and quietly pushed the door open. The inside of the motel was depressing. The walls were made completely out of wood and portraits of mountain landscapes hung on them in rows. An oriental rug lay on the floor and just underneath the front desk. There was a guest book and a cactus in a small pot and a vintage-looking handbell on top of it. I shuddered. There was a heavy draft in there and it looked as if there'd been a vacancy for years. Well, this is the place. I don't think it's necessary to have you two sign into the guest book, so I'll show you up to your room... Ted smiled, his grotesque teeth glimmering in the light. He led us up a staircase on the right side of the lobby. The hallway was lit by a few mothy overhead lamps. It was long and, just like the rest of the motel, wooden. There were about five rooms on each side of us. The doors closed. It was a bit dusty, which started up another round of quiet wheezing for Calvin. I rolled my eyes. He got us into this. I felt no sympathy. Ah, here we are, Ted finally exclaimed. He stood in front of a room and pulled open the door. There were two twin beds with quilt blankets and feathered pillows. The carpet was a rusty red, the wallpaper slightly peeling at the edges. Some more paintings of mountains and seasides hung around on pathetic-looking nails. I swallowed thickly. Ted reached over me, placing a meaty hand on the light switch above my head. The room didn't look any better, as it was flooded with an eerie, orangish light. It looks very homey. Thanks a lot, Ted, Calvin smiled. I slowly descended inside and sat on one of the beds. I could distantly hear Ted telling my brother where the bathroom was, where to go for breakfast, things like that. I watched silently as Millie returned upstairs with our luggage. I must have zoned out for longer than I thought because when I looked back, the door was closed and Calvin was unpacking our suitcases. We shouldn't be here. I spoke for the first time in what felt like forever. Calvin remained silent as he tossed me my pyjamas. What are we going to tell Joey? We're supposed to be at his house by tomorrow. I heard my brother let out a loud sigh. It was the kind of sigh that your father might let out at the end of a long day. Calvin must have sensed my uneasiness. He walked over slowly and took a seat beside me on the bed. I felt his arm wrap around my shoulder and squeeze it tightly. We didn't say anything. He rested his chin on my shoulder. I could hear his raspy breathing in my ear. We're going to be okay, Laurel. You need to sleep. And with that he kissed my cheek and turned back to his side of the room. We faced opposite directions as we undressed and got into our pyjamas. I reluctantly slipped under the moth-eaten blanket and cold sheets after sitting up in an uncomfortable silence for nearly half an hour. There was no way I was going to sleep. I looked up at the dirty ceiling for what felt like hours, listening to Calvin's breathing. I don't know what time it was when I woke up. I must have dozed off. Yet I don't remember it. Calvin is what woke me up. I heard him hastily throwing his quilt on the floor. His breathing was laboured, as if he had just ran a marathon. I lay up in bed. ''Cal, are you okay?'' I asked into the darkness. I didn't get a response. The zipper to his suitcase was unzipped, and I heard my brother quickly rustling through his clothes. Eventually he found what he was looking for and walked towards the door. ''I'm... I'm fine. I just need some fresh air.'' Calvin gasped out, clutching his inhaler in his hand. Light flooded our room as he stepped into the hallway quietly. He had these episodes a lot. I always felt so hopeless when he did. There was nothing I could do except watch with wide eyes as he struggled to breathe. I don't know why I didn't go after him, but I wish I would have. Those were the last words that I ever heard him speak. He was out there for about 20 minutes, before I finally walked out to check on him. It usually took him a little while to calm down from his asthma attacks. But when I opened the door, Calvin wasn't there. My feet were freezing in the brisk hallway. I rubbed my arm as goosebumps started forming on my pale skin. Looking around, panic slowly started to rise in my throat. I checked in the bathroom to see if Calvin was in there. He wasn't. There weren't many places he could go. Calvin, I called out into the hallway. There was no response. I quietly walked back into our room and put on a pair of slippers. I snuck down the hallway and raced down the stairs. He wasn't in the lobby either. There is no worse feeling than being completely alone in a place that you don't know. It's even worse when the only person you want to comfort you isn't there. One of the hallway lamps flickered overhead. I couldn't help the tears that streamed down my face. My mind was racing with possibilities of where my dear brother could have gone. I wondered if he had stormed off and left because I was just that annoying. I was so caught up in my panic that I didn't see what I had tripped on. I went flying face first into the oriental carpet. As I turned my body around to try and ease the pain, my eyes widened with shock. Calvin's inhaler was lying on the ground. It was just outside the door to our room, where I had seen him go out earlier. It was then that I knew that something was seriously wrong. Calvin wouldn't leave that lying around by choice. He wouldn't drop it by accident. It suddenly dawned on me that wherever he went, he went unwillingly. I let out a sob. I called out his name one more time. I reached my shaking arm out and took the inhaler in my hands. I rolled the plastic around in my palm as I stood up placing it in my pocket. We needed to get out of there. I didn't care if he didn't agree. Once I found him, we'd drive away and never come back to this freak show. I dashed back into our room and grabbed the car keys off the bedside table. I didn't bother grabbing anything else. My only focus was getting the hell out of there. I tiptoed down the stairs, the wood creaking under my feet. Pushing open the door, I ran as fast as I could towards the diner, my only exit to the outside world. The lights were still on inside, much to my surprise. I tried not to pay attention to the menacing trees leaning over at me as I raced to the back door. I was preparing to pound on it until my knuckles were red and bloody, but it opened almost immediately. I quietly slipped inside. I could see Calvin's truck on the other side of one of the clear glass windows. It looked so close, yet so far away. I don't know how much adrenaline was pumping through my body at that exact moment, but it took every ounce of my strength I had not to just bolt then and there. The only thing that stopped me was the sound of a metal object clattering to the tiled floor behind me. It echoed loudly into my ears. As far as I could see, there was no one besides me in the building. All of the customers were long gone. I spun around quickly. The doors to the kitchen were closed. When I tried to pry one open, it was locked. I kicked it as hard as I possibly could. I screamed out into the emptiness of the diner for somebody, anybody to come help me. It felt like I'd been in there for years. A dizzying wave of nausea overtook me. I heard that object clatter again, as well as a few barely audible whispers. Someone said, shit, and was quickly shushed. I had to hold my breath just to hear them again. Whatever it was was close by. My neck craned, trying to peer into the kitchen once more. The glass windows were hidden behind a black curtain, hung up so I couldn't see inside. That had not been there earlier. I snuck around behind the counter and pressed my ear against the murky walls. There was a sudden silence and then the shuffling of feet on the tiled floor. I don't know what urged me to do it. It couldn't have been the adrenaline or the hopelessness that had overwhelmingly taken over my body that night. On the counter there were rows of ketchup bottles and silverware. I grabbed a fork out from under a napkin and clutched it in my sweaty palms. I knew there was somebody or something behind that window. I wasn't alone in there. I jammed the fork onto the glass. After about 30 seconds, the glass was starting to crack. I kept banging and banging it until it shattered in front of me. The millions of pieces seemed to fall in slow motion. I didn't step back, though, for as I pulled away the sheet, nothing on earth could prepare me for what I was about to stumble onto. A stream of smoke poured out through the broken glass, But even through it I could see that the O'Malley's kitchen was a typical diner kitchen. There were a few stoves and ovens. A refrigerator in the back held a week's worth of food. But that was not what caught my attention. The overwhelming stench of burning flesh filled my nostrils. I coughed and gagged, struggling hard to get a breath out. My eyes started to tear up. I flailed my arms in attempt to clear a path, but found myself unsuccessful. The grotesque smell made me want to puke. Who's there? I recognised the voice. It was the voice of the man who had taken Calvin and I to our rooms a couple of hours ago. I didn't make a sound. I still couldn't see, but eventually the smoke cleared through the broken window. My watery eyes soon adjusted to the fluorescent lighting. My mouth fell open in horror. Ted and Millie O'Malley stood in the middle of the kitchen. There was a silver pot about the size of a record player resting on a table in the centre. It was the first time that I got a good look around me. Blood was splattered on every inch of the walls surrounding us. It dripped down in streams and formed small puddles on the floor. There was a cleaver clutched in Ted's meaty fist, gleaming menacingly in the light. Millie stood beside him, A wooden spoon at her side. It was wet and covered in what looked like oversized worms. Intestines. I didn't speak. My attention turned to the pot still boiling and bubbling. I saw my brother's pyjamas strewn into a pile in the corner. I could see clumps of his hair sticking to the sides of the pot. My feet stayed frozen in place as the stench of his burning flesh filled my head and every inch of my body. "'My eyes burned. My mouth was dry. I couldn't even utter a scream. "'Grab her,' Millie snarled in a crackling voice. "'Ted lunched for me, but I was too quick. "'The fat ass fell on his front, face first into a puddle of Calvin's blood. "'Millie grabbed the cleaver and threw it at the door "'just as I pried it open and ran like hell. "'I ran outside the diner and flung open the door to the truck, "'jamming the keys inside.' I could make out Millie's body racing towards me in the night, but I started the car up faster. It sputtered for a moment, then shot out like a rocket. I'd had no experience with driving, but that was not my top priority. I needed to find help. Tears were streaming down my face, blocking my vision. I was having a mental breakdown as I whisked unsteadily through the New Jersey trees. I let out howls of despair... "'Occasionally I'd spit up whatever food I had left in my stomach. "'The smell of that flesh wouldn't leave me. "'I'm sure I nearly drove off the road at least three times, "'but I didn't care. "'They had killed Calvin. "'They had killed my brother and chopped him up and cooked him. "'I pounded my head on the wheel, the horn blasting into the night. "'I could feel the blood trickling down the side of my face, "'seeping into my hair. "'My vision was starting to show spots.' I don't know how long I had driven until I finally found a car on the side of the road. There was a man kneeling down to examine one of his tyres. I jerked to a stop and flew out of the truck, slamming the door behind me. Vomit clung to the side of my mouth, dried blood on my face, tears still gushing like a waterfall. He was an older man with a wrinkled face and skunk streaks in his hair. I frightened him, for he stood back in fear. I knew I looked like a mess, a drug addict, whatever. I sounded like one too. You need to help me. They killed my brother. They killed him. They killed him. They chopped him up and they killed him. I remember falling to my knees and howling in pain. The man tried to pry me back up, but I thrashed around in his arms. He groaned loudly as I kicked him in the gut by accident. I could distantly hear his panicked voice trying to get an answer out of me. "'Who?' he yelled through a thick Jersey accent. "'Who killed your brother?' I shook my head rapidly, gasping for air. The wind pounded at my ears as I tried to speak. The last things I could make out were his eyes gleaming in the darkness. As I wheezed out the name through pain, I fell hard to the asphalt. They tell me that I was practically frothing at the mouth when they found me. I had blacked out for a moment, and the cops assumed I was dead. But I woke up. I was screaming for Calvin, screaming for somebody to help me, screaming for someone to believe me. Yet, to this day, no one does. O'Malley's family restaurant had been torn down in the late 1950s. Once word got out that the seemingly friendly owners trapped their victims in the motel and ate them, it was barricaded and destroyed. Theodore and Millicent O'Malley were given the death penalty in 1956. 20 years before my brother and I pulled up that summer night. I later learned that they had killed over 20 travellers who crossed their paths, including a gang of motorcycle riders, a group of teenage greasers and a woman with her young daughter. When the man who found me finally brought me to the police, I was in hysterics. I was handcuffed and thrown into the back of a patrol car, They drove me back to the exit where Calvin and I had turned earlier that night. Where the restaurant had stood mere hours earlier was just an empty lot. The sign wasn't there. The building had disappeared. There was no motel, no sign that anybody had been there for years. It was just an empty patch of dirt. No sign of life anywhere. No sign of Calvin. I tried to explain. I cried for what felt like years, yet... No one believed me. The police searched for months on end, but they never did find my brother's body. His final resting place had vanished into thin air. They never found any evidence of anything. I still had Calvin's inhaler in the pocket of my sweatshirt. I can't tell you the number of times I've shoved it in those cops' faces, telling them that it was the key to finding out where he was. But I was a lost cause. They even had the audacity to accuse me of murdering him. My case was eventually outruled due to lack of evidence. But my years of pain never stopped. The judge was convinced that I was mental and needed to be locked away. So they threw me in here, which is where I have been since the early autumn of 1976. I'm a grown woman now, writing this story down as a cry for help. I'm hoping that somebody out there will believe me, someone who knows what I'm talking about. I swear to God that I am not insane. I felt it. I lived it. I survived it. It's not all in my head. Yet that has been what all of these doctors and psychiatrists have been trying to convince me for years. They said I've imagined it all. All this medication pumping into my body has turned my brain to mush. But I know that I didn't. It was too real to have possibly been a dream. The only thing I still have to remember that night by is Calvin's inhaler. I hold on to it every day, never letting it go. It's the only thing I have to remind myself that my brother was real. It's the only piece of evidence that I have. It's the only part of him that they will never be able to take away from me. You won't find anything about the O'Malley's or Calvin Duncan anywhere on the internet. It's as if it was a tragedy meant just for me. It's as if the whole world wants to forget... Yet there is a road down in the midst of New Jersey. If you turn at just the right spot, you might see the ghostly hue of a diner, filled with life and joy inside. Don't be fooled. It isn't real. Keep driving and don't look back. But if you do happen to see a boy in the window, with mousy brown hair, kind eyes and a loving smile, you should wave at him. You should yell out into the night that Laurel loves him and she misses him very much. And you should tell him that she is sorry that she couldn't have done more. And the credit for this story goes to a patient who uploaded this story from the Greystone Park Psychiatric Hospital in New Jersey.